meet with friendly and, and fellow believers, Lord. We, we thank you for this opportunity to um, be here and enjoy a, an April morning and uh, enjoy the weather that you've given us this weekend, Lord. Um, we pray that our hearts and our ears and our, and our eyes can be open to you, Lord. We thank you for Ben. We thank you for the message that he's bringing. Um, we thank you for the Easter season, Lord, uh, and, and what it means to, to us as believers. Uh, most of all, we thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tanner, for leading us this morning. First uh, Peter chapter 5 is where we will be. Uh, we're going to start in verse 5 and make our way all the way to the end of verse 11. <clears throat> Happy Palm Sunday. Uh, it's a Sunday when we recognize that Jesus entered into Jerusalem. Vince wants me to do this real bad. Palm Sunday. Uh, we just, every now and then you just do things because you love somebody. All right, so Palm Sunday, not what Jesus is talking about. It's where they laid palm leaves down and Jesus walked into Jerusalem. So this is Holy Week on the church calendar, meaning the week, the last week of Jesus' life. And you can walk through the scriptures. So Friday will be Good Friday and the next Sunday is Easter Sunday. Humility has always been difficult for humans. And lest you think this is a new problem, I have a record from the 1970s in my office by a man named Mac Davis that says this, and I quote, Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. It's like he knew me. Uh, To know me is to love me. I must be a... And then he uses a word that I use as a noun, but he's not using it as a noun, so I'm not going to repeat it from the pulpit. Man, oh Lord, it's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best that I can. That's from the 70s. So all you people who are like, this is just newfangled kids are coming up with these things. No, Mac Davis was doing this long before we were. Humility is hard, and humility is difficult. And humility is what Peter has tasked us with when we look through this text of Scripture. So I'm going to read uh, 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, we're going to start in verse 5, even though we, we covered that last week. We're going to start in verse 5 and go all the way through verse 11. In the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. All of you, clothe yourself with humility towards one another, because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he might exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. Be sober-minded, alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. Then the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal Uh, Glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today. I thank you that we can come to a passage like this one. A passage where we can look at what humility means. We can look at what humility doesn't mean. We can look at pride and what pride means and what pride doesn't mean. 
We can look at the gospel and see what the gospel means and what the gospel doesn't mean. And God, it, this passage draws our hearts, it draws our minds, it draws our feelings, it draws our emotions upward to look at you and to trust you. So pray this morning as we sit under your word, as we hear your proclamation, as your words goes out about us, that you would encourage our hearts where we need the encouragement, convict our hearts where we need conviction, and grow us in you more and more. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Right, we're going to read verse 5 through 7 again, uh, and we're just going to start halfway through verse, verse 5. All of you, clothe yourself with humility towards one another, because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him, because he cares about you. So, we, we come to this passage, and in wrapping up this letter, right, we're getting to the very, very end of 1 Peter. And so Peter, wrapping up this letter, tells all of these churches that have been scattered abroad, all of these, these people that are believers that he's writing to that are facing persecution, they're going to face more persecution. And so Peter's kind of addressing them how to live these holy lives in the midst of all of these things. Peter shifted, we saw this last week, and he's talking to the church. He's like, here's how a healthy church should be. Get, get pastors who are going to shepherd you. They're going to shepherd you by uh, willingly, eagerly, and being an example for you. And you're going to be the flock among them uh, to, to follow in those things. He says, God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble is kind of like this key quote from the Old Testament that that sets up this book. And the way Peter says it is what he's saying is God continually resists the proud and God continually gives grace to the humble. There's not a point in time when God goes, I'm kind of tired of fighting the proud. I'm not going to resist them anymore. I'm just going to let the proud kind of have their way for a little bit. There's not a point in time when God goes, you know what? Those humble people are driving me nuts. I'm just not going to give grace to the humble for this season. I'm just going to let them kind of go. They can go about their humble business, and if they're upset about it and they say something, then, then they're proudful, and they can't say anything because if they're humble, they won't. Now, he said God is continually opposing the proud, continually giving grace to the humble. He's talking to these churches and he gave us this description of, of the ministry of a, a pastor and the ministry of the church, where you have the shepherd of the, the church and what that's supposed to look like. And it works in such a way to where the only way that the church works is if there's mutual humility within everybody that's a member. What Peter's saying is, your pastors, I'm not better than you. The, the congregation, you're not better than me. That we're all sinners, that we're all fallen, that we're all not perfect, that we all struggle with sin, and some of us struggle with different kinds of sin in different ways and different implementations, but we're all Christians and we're all working together to grow one another into the glory of the Lord, to look more and more like Jesus. And so to finish this thought and to finish wrapping up his letter, Peter continues on. He says, so humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. This is a command. Here's a Bible reading tip for you. When you come across the same idea or the same phrase multiple times, especially within like a a chapter of the Bible, it's important. It's meant to perk your ears up. It's meant to say, okay, they're, they're telling me something specific here. So Peter says, clothe yourself with humility towards one another because God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. So if you want the grace from the Lord, you need to be humble. If you want God to resist you, then be proud. 
and humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Humble, humble, humble is continually used in this passage. So Peter's making the point very, very clear. What he's saying is, I'm not better than you. You're not better than me. That we're all sinners. We're all fallen. We're all in this together. We're meant to help each other grow into Christ, not to look down upon each other or to look up and idolize anyone. That you and I are on the same plane. But there's a catch to what Peter says. Did you get it? He says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. You and I are on the same plane. God is not. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is far beyond you and I. God is completely independent when you and I are dependent. He does not need us. He does not need creation. There is nothing that God needs to exist. He is independent of everything. He is unchangeable. If you want the big, like, the $2 theological word, immutable. He's unchanging in his being. He's unchanging in his perfection. He's unchanging in his purpose. He's unchanging in his promise. God is completely perfect. So if God were to change, then God couldn't make himself more perfect if he's already completely perfect. For God to change would mean he would sin, would mean God would not be perfect. So God cannot change, will not change. He is complete and full, independent in himself, unchangeable, immutable. He's eternal. God has no beginning, and God has no end. He's not bound by the constraints of time like you and I are. He's not stuck in this succession of moments, in this succession of events. We can't comprehend this because we're bound so much by time that our language betrays us. When we talk about a time before time, we have to use the word before, which is a time word, which doesn't work if we're talking about something outside of time. Yet that's where God exists. There has never been a time when God was not, and there will never be a time when God will not be. He is eternal, unchangeable, immutable, completely independent. God is everywhere. Your big theology word, omnipresent. Much like how God is beyond the constraints of time, he is beyond the constraints of like our spatial dimensions that we live in. He doesn't have a size. Have you ever thought about how God's small enough to dwell in your heart, to stitch your smallest cells together and to hold them in place, yet at the same time to hold the universe in the palm of his hand? I, I used this illustration from Genesis a few years ago, and I'm going to use it again. I took it from a guy. I don't know if he's a Christian or not a Christian. He goes on a TED Talk on YouTube, I found. His name is John Bergman. So I don't, I don't know anything about him. I don't know anything about his credentials. I just know what he said about what I'm about to share with you. God created the world with building blocks. He created it with order. Right? If you look at, at Genesis and if you look at the rest of the New Testament, if you look at so much of what God does, is he takes chaos and he makes order out of chaos. And you can look at creation and recognize that God uses order in creation. So everything, you and I were made up of protons, neutrons, and electrons. The, the, those three form an atom. No atom is visible to the human eye. You have to have a special microscope to see them. Now, in the TED Talk, he takes a grapefruit, and he says, if you take a grapefruit, and for our purposes, you say every atom in the grapefruit is a nitrogen atom, which it's not. But if every atom is a nitrogen atom, do you know how many atoms would make up a grapefruit? Well, if we take each atom, 
in the grapefruit and we make it the size of a blueberry, how big would the grapefruit end up needing to be? It would be the size of the earth. So imagine earth and it's just blueberries all the way through. Those two need to sit closer to the front. (laughs) That's how many atoms are in a grapefruit. Now remember, atoms are made up of protons, neutrons, and electrons. And so you have electrons that orbit the protons and the neutrons, and in the protons and neutrons is what's called the nucleus. And so how big is the nucleus of these tiny little atoms? Well, if we take the blueberry, the atom, and we make it the size of a two-story building, and you cut it open, the nucleus would be the size of a marble inside of it. So, you have earth that's all blueberries, and if you take one blueberry, make it the size of a two-story building, cut it open, then you have the nucleus inside of the blueberry that's the size of a marble. That is absolutely mind-numbingly microscopic. In Psalm 139, 13, the psalmist says this, For you created my inward parts, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Which means God is everywhere, and this means that God creates these tiny little protons and neutrons and electrons and forms us together to be in his universe. And there's not one proton, not one neutron, not one electron, not one atom in the whole created expanse of the entire world that's not under God's sovereign control. Yet at the exact same time, right, God's not bound by time. He's not bound by space. He's able to hold the largest star in the biggest universe together. When we talk about the size of the universe, we have to talk about observable in the unobserved universe. Do you know why? Because we haven't seen it yet. I haven't seen all of it. That's pretty simple. It's according to NASA. I don't know if you've heard of her, but she's in Houston. The farthest galaxy that the Hubble Space Telescope has been able to see is 13.4 billion light years away. This means you have to travel the speed of light for 13.4 billion years to reach it. One year, uh, one light year is 6 trillion miles. So think of the number one and then put 12 zeros behind it. That's how far we're talking about. And maybe you've seen that the Hubble Space Telescope's not the newest telescope. There's a newer one now, the James Webb Telescope, which can see 13.6 billion light years away. We know the universe is expanding. They got spoken. Ever since then, everything has been moving outwards, which means they did some fancy math, and the observable universe is something like 93 billion light years wide. We can drive fast in our minivan, but we can't go that fast. So if the entire observable universe was shrunk down to the size of our solar system, the size of Earth would be the size of the flu virus. You know, the thing that you can't see unless you have a microscope. Yet we see in Genesis 1, 17 through 16, uh, see in Genesis 1, 16 through 17, and God made two great lights, the greater to rule over the day and the lesser to rule over the night as well as the stars. And God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth. And that's just the known universe. That's not even going beyond what we can't see. God is everywhere. That means he's omnipresent. There's nowhere that God is not God's unified. He's not divided into parts. 
First John 1 John 1.5 says God is light. First John 4, 8 says God is love. Does this mean that God is like partially love and then partially light? Like how do those things fit together? No, this means that God in himself is light and God in himself is love. God's not some various characters that we've kind of added together to create this deity that we like. God's whole being is all of his attributes. He's entirely loving. He's entirely just. He's entirely merciful. God is unified. He's omniscient, which means God is all-knowing. You and I are the only creatures created in the image of God, and we are feeble-minded compared to the mind of God. There is nothing that God does not know, and not only does God know our thoughts and everything there is to know about the world, he knows our hearts, as scripture tells us, more importantly. And this is important because it means that Jesus wasn't surprised when he died on the cross and he found some sins in you that you may not have wanted anybody to see. He didn't get on the cross and go, I have to suffer for that. I didn't realize they did that. No, he already knew. And he dies anyways. He knew exactly what it would take. He knew exactly how much of the cup of the wrath he would have to drink. God cannot get surprised because he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. It's not an accident with God. He's all-powerful. He's omnipotent. God can make the winds and waves obey his voice. I can't get my dog to sit down with a treat. Our smartest scientists and our best engineers that we could gather together from wherever can't figure out how to slow down the West Texas wind. Yet God speaks and they obey. We look at the pyramids and we recognize it must have taken those guys hundreds and hundreds of years to build those pyramids, yet with God's voice he can raise up mountains. You know, the skyscrapers can be built, built very, very high, but it takes a lot of money, it takes a lot of time and effort, and you have to dig really deep into the earth to do all those things. Yet God speaks, and mountains can just form. In one breath, God controls the uncontrollable because God is sovereign and we are not. God is all-powerful. There's so much here that we could say about God. There's so many things that we could talk about with God, especially in terms of when it comes to humility, because humility is hard. Humility is difficult. But we understand God's command for us to be humble when we begin thinking about who God is and what God has done. When we begin thinking in terms of who God is and we begin thinking about all of the attributes of God that he reveals himself to be, humility begins to get easier, doesn't it? Humility is only difficult when we imagine that we're at the center of the universe and not the Lord. Humility is hardest when we think that we are more important than we really are. This is really what sin is. Looking at God and saying, I don't like how you rule the world. I want to rule my world my way. I want to be the king of my life. I want to be the queen of my life. I want to control my life. I want to be able to do what I want, when I want, and how I want. I know what's best for me, God. You don't know what's best for me. So let me do what I'm going to do and just kind of get out of the way. Yet those who humble themselves under the hand of the Lord, God gives grace to. And what's the the result of this humility, what Peter tells us, so that he may exalt you at the proper time.
Those who humble themselves will be exalted by the God that put, they put themselves under. Why? Why would God do this? Why would the independent, unchangeable, eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, unified God who rules all of creation and has this little creation that rebelled against him, why would he ever do anything to exalt that sinful creation? Because he cares about us. Do you hear what Peter says? Casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. There is no reason that God should care about us. Beyond like setting an example uh, of us. Yet Peter tells us, not only did God knit you together in your mother's womb. Not only is the God who is everywhere and can do anything... Uh, all those things. Not only has God that massive God, he cares about you, that he sees you, that he hears you, that he knows what's going on, that he's not blind to your problems, he's not blind to your struggles, that he is powerful enough to stop it, but sometimes he doesn't, that he's all-knowing and he sees it happening and he cares about you and he loves you and he knows what it is that's going to bring him glory, which is why all of our lives are about bringing God glory. So we take those concerns, we take those hurts, we take those pains, we take the scars, we take the anger, the frustration, the burdens, we take the sins and we cast them on the Lord. Because he knows them, and he can take them, and he can handle it. That's why we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Think about the original audience that Peter's writing to. They're being persecuted for being Christians. Gathering together, fearing that somebody's going to bust down the door and come after them. Gathering together, slowly being taken away. Some of them, before the letter reaches them, or even before Second Peter gets to them, are going to be killed, going to be like murdered for being a Christian. And what does God say? Cast your cares upon me. I know what's going on. Verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. Be sober-minded. This is the command. We've seen Peter use this word several times. It means be of a clear mind. Think right. Be alert. This is a command too. Right, keep your head on a swivel. Look around. Why? Why do we need to be sober-minded? Why do we need to be alert? Because the devil is not fake. He is real, and he is continually prowling around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to eat. So yes, the devil is real. Yes, the devil is dangerous. Yes, the devil is continually looking for anyone he can devour and destroy. This has always been the plan of the devil. But we make two errors when it comes to Satan. We think too much of him, and we think too little. We think too much, and we think he can control us and force us to do things. The devil doesn't have that power. And we think too little in thinking he doesn't exist, and he's not really an issue, and he is. So what should we do? Peter tells us, resist him firm in the faith. Did you notice who Peter says the adversary of the devil is? He didn't say God. He said he's your adversary. He's coming after you. So the command is to resist him, right? He can't force you. He can persuade. He can influence. uh, But Jesus has already defeated him on the cross. So resist him. Stand firm in the faith, the faith in God. Satan is not another God fighting after our God that we just cross our fingers and hope that our God is stronger than Satan. That's not who he is at all. I just walked through the attributes of our God. It's an unfair fight. 
So probably what Peter's talking about is the suffering that is happening to these people. That partly the, the devil is roaring around looking for people to devour. And listen to what Peter says. Knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. The devil is not omnipresent. He's not everywhere. Which means he's talking about the devil and his, his minions, the demons. And they're causing suffering. And even in the midst of the devil looking for people to devour, God is using this strategy of Satan against him to comfort those who are in the middle of the persecution. Simply knowing that others are in the fight with you is meant to give hope and encouragement to Christians. If you're running and being chased and afraid of being devoured, there are Christians who are getting burned at the stake because their faith is what they're supposed to cling to to resist the devil. Just knowing that there's other believers who are struggling too, that God hasn't just forgotten them, that God is using this for his glory and for their good is something that's meant to bring encouragement. And one of the things it does is it solidifies your faith. You know you really believe something if you're willing to die for it. But I think it's just interesting. How in one breath can Peter say, Be humble under the mighty hand of God, and in the next verse say, Be humble because the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion, and he's hungry, and he's looking for people to devour. How can Peter say, cast all your cares upon God because he cares about you? Well, in the next breath, Peter says, oh, and be careful. There's this adversary, the devil, that's roaring around and he's trying to bite you. If God's all-powerful, if God's all-knowing, if God cares about us, then it seems odd that God would let this enemy linger around when he could destroy him. And from our perspective, it often feels like that if God cares about us, then the devil wouldn't exist. God would just wipe him out. Our problems would be solved and just be gone. Have you ever noticed that Christians will chalk up almost anything that they don't like to the devil? I've done this a few times. Somebody told me I need to be nice to my coworkers, and I looked at him and I said, Not today, Satan. The devil's just been coming after me lately. My kids, my spouse, uh, the laundry, the dishes, etc. He's just attacking me. Those dishes just keep stacking up. God cares about you. Yes, absolutely. And all of the little things that bother you, God cares about you. And he cares about those concerns too. As small and silly as they may seem, God cares about you. But at the exact same time, let's understand that laundry is not a fault of the devil. Adam and Eve were naked in the garden and sin brought laundry on. God has allowed evil to show his glory. To show that his grace is far beyond evil. We're called to be humble because the devil is real and he is dangerous. We're called to be humble because God is far beyond us and we rest under the mighty hand of God. And we're called to be humble because God did and does and will do the work of saving. Look at verse 10. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered for a little while. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Paul says the God of all 
grace. Grace means unmerited favor. It's a gift. It cannot be earned. It can only be received. And God is the God of all grace, not the God of most grace, not the God of 99.99% of grace. All grace. Without sin, without evil, without suffering, there is no cross. And without the cross, you and I would not understand the love of God, the care that God has for his children. Remember, God is independent, unchangeable, eternal, omnipotent, unified, omniscient, omnipresent. And Jesus is God. Jesus is all of those things, right? He's not one-third of those things. He is completely and fully God in and of himself. And it's Jesus who steps into history. The eternal God who's outside of time steps into time. Why? It wasn't just to look around and see what's going on. It's to recognize that the only way his people can be with him, the only way that he can save us from our sin, our own sin that we started, the wrath of God that you and I deserve, the only way that he can save us from that sin is to step into the story to live the life that we should have lived and to die the death that you and I deserve to be the substitutionary atonement that you and I need so that when Jesus Christ dies on the cross he defeats sin, he defeats death he defeats the devil, he takes the wrath of God that we deserve and he gives to us his righteousness, he imputes to us his righteousness so that now we can be saved not because of what we do but because what Christ has done He becomes finite. He's infinite. He's born and he's tempted just like you and I are tempted. The devil tries to get Jesus. The devil uses everything within his power to try to get Jesus to sin. We read this in the temptations of Jesus in the gospel. And when it doesn't work, what Satan does is he goes to Jesus' friends, his ministry buddies, the Pharisees, the scribes, Judas, to try to hinder his ministry as much as he can. And finally it culminates in Passover when Jesus is arrested, illegally tried, found guilty of blasphemy, which is always ironic to me. And it's so sad because he was claiming to be God, but it wasn't blasphemy because blasphemy is claiming to be God and not being God. He gets on the cross, he bears the wrath of God and the sins for his people, and he dies, and the devil thinks he won. But it's in the suffering It's in the shedding of his blood for his people who rejected him, who didn't love him first, who didn't care for him, that the ultimate victory is had. That on the cross, Jesus satisfied God's justice, that he showed the immeasurable riches of God's grace. And so Peter says, cast your cares on him because he cares about you. And at the same time, he says, be humble because the devil is looking to eat you. Because in the end, Jesus wins. So those who have faith, those who trust in Christ, endure. They remain through those hard times. So we're humble because Jesus does the work. We simply follow Jesus. And then did you catch like the staccato notes of what Peter was saying? He himself will restore you. This is future, saying this is going to happen in the future. All of the suffering that you're going to go through, all the things that you lose in the suffering, Jesus is saying, I will restore to you fully and completely. You will lose everything, but in the end it's worth it because you gain Jesus. He's saying that I will establish for you. He will establish any position, any right, any privilege, any responsibility that the suffering is taken away from you. Christ will bring it back. He's saying, I will strengthen you for any weakness that you have been, uh, that's been cost you suffering, anything that's cost you to suffer more, any inadequacy. 
mercy, any overcoming evil, anything that, that's been taken from the suffering, Jesus is saying, I will strengthen you, right? We're going to feel weak, but in the end, Jesus is our strength. He's going to support you in the future, right? Settle uh, any rightful place that we lose, any that suffering takes from us, anything that's been wrongfully stolen from us, that he will long for more, but Jesus is going to support us in those things. So Peter is saying all of the losses that you're going to go through, he's not saying there will be no losses. Everything that you will lose will be made right and last for an eternity. And then there's this little phrase that we don't see at Hobby Lobby. After you have suffered a little while. They don't put that one on pillows. I wonder why. After the suffering, not before. You have to go through the fire to be purified. To him, to that Jesus, be dominion forever. Amen. Philippians 2, 6 through 11 says this, who existed, talking about Jesus, who existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited or grasped. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the fa- God the Father. The gospel was God's idea. It was never a backup plan. The gospel is accomplished by God. The gospel is all we have. And the gospel is enough. Because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The gospel's not for the proud. It's not for those who have life figured out. It's not for those who know what they would. It's not for those who have it together. The gospel's not for the proud. It's for the weak. It's for those who admit that we need a Savior. If you don't need a Savior, you don't have the gospel. It's not for you. You have to have the humility to say, I can't do this on my own. I need someone to take my place. But the gospel gives grace to the humble. Grace is a gift. It cannot be earned. It can only be received. So the command for this section of the scripture is very easy. Be humble. Like Christ was humbled. Did you catch that? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So for believers, let me remind you of the gospel that saved you. That it wasn't your works, that it wasn't your brains, that it wasn't your brawn, that it wasn't your ability, that it wasn't your bank account, that none of those things are what saved you. It was the grace of God displayed to us on the gospel, by the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus. Look, here's a little truth for us. We're an IRA. We're not that important. 
As much as I love Ira, if we were that important, I feel like God would have put us in, in more important cities. <laughs> Most of the time when I say I'm from Ira, they go, are you Roth or what kind? Praise God for the humility we have. Because God uses people like us throughout church history. Because he gives grace to the humble. For unbelievers, I hope this makes no sense to you. It makes no sense if you don't believe in Jesus to not build up pride within yourself. Because if you're an unbeliever, then the only hope you have is to make something of yourself, to do something to fulfill whatever void you feel like you're trying to fulfill. Please hear me. You will chase that the rest of your life and never be satisfied. Because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So be honest with yourself. Recognize that you cannot do this on your own. That you cannot save yourself, that you cannot be good enough, that you can't be funny enough, that you can't be smart enough, that you can't chase whatever it is that you're trying to chase after to save your soul. It won't work. Be humble and admit you need a Savior. Repent, turn to Jesus, and lean into the gospel of grace and mercy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. God, I thank you that you're not a weak God by any means. That when we begin to think about you and who you are and what you've done for us, God, it ought to make our minds just hurt thinking about what you did for us, how much you loved us when we don't love you, how much you loved us when we didn't love you. God, we love because you first displayed your love for us. We can cast our cares on you because you first cared about us. We never cared about you first. We're creatures and you're the creator. Everything that is is because of you. And so as we think about pride, as we think about humility and what that means and what that doesn't mean, God, I pray that your gospel would wash over us and remind us that we're not that special. We're not that important. But God, you are. And you see us and you hear us and you love us and you care for us. And so we lean into you. Not into ourselves, not into our own works, not into our own righteousness, into you, Jesus. That you would give us worth, that you would give us value. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the finished work of the cross. Help us this Holy Week to be reminded of what you did for us. The pain that you suffered, the atonement that you gave. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'll stand, Tanner's going to lead us in worship.